0: This is Mesa Verde Voices,
1: a podcast about the ancient history of the Four Corners
0: and why it matters today.
1: We are your two hosts.
0: I'm Callie Carswell
1: and I'm Kayla Eiler.
0: And here's what's in store this season.
1: We've got stories about people, places, public lands,
0: science, culture, and ethics,
1: agriculture, and tourism. And, well, we should just listen, yeah?
0: Yeah, let's do it. Today, the removal of Native American remains from their graves and their return.
2: He said in the Museum of Mesa Verde National Park are a number of well-preserved mummies. To a few of the visitors, they are a bit gruesome. But most people enjoy the mummies more than any other ancient objects in the museum.
0: That's Kathy Fine Dare. I'm a professor of anthropology. She teaches at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. And she's reading from an essay written in 1940 by the park's naturalist, a man named Don Watson.
2: The outstanding mummy in the Mesa Verde Museum is Esther. To many people, she has become almost an actual being. No one refers to her as a mummy.
1: The mummified remains of this woman, people called Esther, were displayed
0: in a glass case from the 1940s to the 1970s. And Esther fascinated visitors. She was one of the park's main attractions.
2: The park would produce brochures for the public. There was almost always, from the ones I could find, photographs of Esther.
1: But for tribal people, Esther and the others like her were a source of pain.
0: And Esther told a larger story— The fact that she had been removed from her grave and put on display represented a long pattern of mistreatment. Where thousands
1: of Native Americans were exhumed from their graves along with funerary objects and other artifacts.
0: This was done legally and illegally, for profit and for study. And it was done without regard for the wishes and beliefs of the dead or their living ancestors.
3: When you bother burials, you desecrate them.
0: That's Lee Kawanawasuma.
3: My name is Lee Kawanawasuma. I'm a member of the Hopi tribe. My clan is Greasewood clan from Third Mesa.
0: Lee is the recently retired director of the Hopi Cultural Preservation Office.
3: Whether or not under the white man's law it's legal or not, nothing's legal as far as Hopi is concerned.
1: In this episode, we're going to learn about this history from Lee, Kathy, and others. And about how tribes have changed the trajectory in recent decades, working with the federal government and museums to put the bodies of their ancestors back to rest.
0: And we're going to do that by revisiting Esther's story. The story of how she ended up in a glass case at Mesa Verde. And of how decades later, she was returned to her descendants and reburied.
4: Esther had been buried in the Falls Creek rock shelters around 200 BC. This is Julie Coleman. Okay, my name is Julie Coleman, and I'm the forest archaeologist for the San Juan National Forest.
0: The rock shelter where Esther was originally buried is outside of Durango, Colorado,
4: and today it's part of the San Juan National Forest. It's a beautiful rock shelter overlooking the valley floor. I'm sure at the time when the Basketmaker 2 people lived there, it was just a little paradise.
0: Esther's people lived in the Falls Creek area on and off for a thousand years, starting around 200 B.C., Julie says, and
4: they were the region's first farmers. She was about 17 to 21 years old at the time. She passed away, and she was buried with a beautiful feather cloak and had been lovingly buried in the rock shelters where she remained for almost 2,000 years, when Zeke Flora came along and uh, dug her up. Zeke Flora moved to
1: Durango as an adult.
2: He had had a watch shop.
1: But he also took an interest in the ancient
0: history of his adopted home. Which is to say, he went to both public and private lands with a shovel and dug up archaeological sites.
4: He's very interested in the archaeologist, but he was not a professional archaeologist he found his way to the Falls Creek rock shelters on a tip from another
0: local with an interest in archaeology, a woman from a prominent local family named Helen Sloan Daniels.
1: Daniels had visited the Falls Creek Valley and taken an interest in the pictographs in the caves, and soon after she showed Flora a photo of the rock shelter. According to Florence Lister in her book Prehistory in Peril, Daniels pointed to the photo and told Flora, this is the
0: place to dig. The pair visited the rock shelter together a few days later. They dug out a cradle board, baskets, beads, necklaces, and bags. And 19 human bodies, by Flora's count that day. Esther was one of them. She was buried in the back of the shelter, in the driest spot.
1: And because of that, her body was incredibly well-preserved,
0: thousands of years after she was buried. So when people say she was a mummy, it's not because she was embalmed, but because her body underwent a natural desiccation. Her body was dried out, but otherwise totally intact. She still had her skin and her hair, her teeth and her eyes. According to Lister, Zeke Flora and Helen Sloan Daniels spent several days removing artifacts and human remains from the rock shelter. And
2: then Zeke Flora just took them home.
3: Remains like in this case were just simply now part of his collection.
2: And I found in the archives photographs that um, Flora and or his wife had taken of some of the mummies propped up against chairs.
3: Yeah, so yeah, all of those kind of um, behavior by people who, I guess, treat our ancestors as just collectibles.
0: We should point out that none of this was legal. It wasn't legal to take artifacts or human remains from public lands without permits. And it wasn't ethical either.
3: Hopi still has a living connection to all those remains out there that are clearly Hopi and Pueblo. We have a very strong emotional feeling about Mesa Verde because we know the history of Hopi clans up there. So it is... Personal for Hopis. Personal.
1: At the time, though, archaeologists could get permits from agencies like the Forest Service to do just what Zeke Flora and Helen Sloan Daniels did, if more carefully and for academic
0: purposes. But they still usually didn't consult tribes. They didn't get permission from the descendants of the people they were removing from their graves, which is to say that as a moral, ethical, or spiritual matter, they didn't think at the time that there was anything wrong with excavation, even of human remains. In fact, they may have even told themselves they were doing a good thing.
3: Particularly at the turn of the century when there was now a syndrome called the vanishing Indian syndrome. People realized that in the eastern coast, many tribes had fallen into extinction or were now threatened. You know, Their land bases were taken away. Disease came in, foreign disease came in, they were decimated. So suddenly, science archaeology decided, wow, we gotta go out and salvage the tribal cultures.
2: It was a free fall.
3: Human remains were no exceptions.
1: At Falls Creek, Zeke Flora recognized the extraordinary nature of the remains he'd found. Zeke
4: got Earl Morris interested. Earl Morris was a famous Southwestern archaeologist. He made a deal with Earl Morris. He kinda like leased so-called leased or loaned for a monetary amount. Esther and her other, the other humans who had been buried with her.
0: And Earl Morris came down to Durango, got permits from the government and finished excavating the rock shelter. And Esther was sent on tour.
2: Um, Esther herself for a while was displayed in 1938 at University of Colorado Boulder. And then she and other human remains were at displayed in Durango at the Durango Library.
4: She went to the Carnegie, and she was at the Harvard, and I think she was actually in Chicago as well. And then, as time went by, Zeke felt that he wanted the collection back, or he wanted more money, so in a way, he was kind of blackmailing Earl Morris. And at that point, Earl Morris called the superintendent, Amasa Verde, and had, uh, the superintendent of Mesa Verde confiscate the collection from Zeke, and that's how it all ended up at Mesa Verde.
3: The bottom line for those individuals was they were ex- what they called exhibit quality. They were intact remains, right? <laughs> so that's a term that was, was used apparently to have these individuals on, on display there for, decades, you know.
0: So I want to read to you from a piece written for a park booklet in 1939 by an archaeologist named Jean McWort. Okay. Okay. So she wrote about Esther's arrival at the park, her significance in the museum's collection, and about the reaction of some Navajo visitors to seeing her. McWort said the Navajo referred to the museum as Devil House because of the human remains it held. And well, here's what she wrote. Three old men were watched as they went through. They proceeded slowly from case to case, looking intently at each object, not glancing on ahead. Suddenly, one of the old fellows found himself face to face with Esther. Without apparent effort, he seemed to glide across the room to crash into the case on the opposite side. After a moment of animated conversation about chindis, that, by the way, is the Navajo word for devil, the three men left. Later, they said that for a long time after they saw Esther, they were dizzy in the head. So it sounds like for these Navajo men, seeing Esther
1: wasn't this fascinating experience like it was for other visitors. They saw something dangerous and frightening instead.
0: Yeah, and there's more. She goes on. One elderly Navajo woman, upon seeing Esther, left the museum and hurried to the Hogans, half a mile away. She claimed that she knew nothing from the time she left the museum until she reached the Hogans. Two young Navajo women, upon meeting Esther, went immediately to the park hospital and wanted some, quote, pills for their heads. It sounds like what
1: she's describing is a traumatic experience.
0: Yeah, it sounds that way to me too. But, and I think this tells you a lot about attitudes at the time, McWirt described the reaction of these Navajo visitors as, quote, amusing. It wasn't really until the late 60s or early 70s that park officials seemed to start taking Native American views about the display of human remains seriously. Here's Kathy Fine Dare again.
2: In the 1940s and 50s, the comments that the park received seemed to be those that were complimentary and they liked having her there. Um, By the 60s, there were lots of letters I found in the archive where people were complaining, comments such as, This is not respectful, you shouldn't display human beings like this. Kathy
0: did find mention in the park's archives that it received a letter in 1970 from the American Indian Movement asking for Esther to be removed and it had received complaints from individuals, native and non-native. At first, the superintendent addressed the issue by covering
2: Esther's museum case with a sheet. And in in 71, uh, Wenger added some additional information to the rationale for removal. And this is what he says, this letter of August seventeenth, nineteen 1971. He says in April quote, some Indian groups had protested the display of prehistoric skeleton mummy remains at Fort Lewis College in nearby Durango. And because of that, the Park Service had um, also made a decision to cover up. And then they made a decision to remove them completely, and that's where we don't know exactly when. They didn't keep good records, or I couldn't find them in the archives, but it was in the early 70s when this all came to a head.
0: And then Esther would spend another 40-plus years in storage.
1: But something really important happened
0: in that time. It did. In 1990, the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It's often referred to by its acronym, NAGPRA.
5: This policy is was designed to offer institutions who steward collections of archaeological materials and objects of cultural patrimony, that opportunity to, one, inventory their collections and to provide those inventories back to the tribes uh, with the longer-term objective of repatriating those materials um, back to the tribe or tribes.
0: This is Brian Vio.
5: My name is Brian Vio, and I am from Acoma Pueblo, currently the director of the Indian Arts Research Center at the School for Advanced Research.
0: That's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So NAGPRA was a civil rights law designed to return control of their ancestors' remains, the objects they were buried with, and other artifacts back to tribes. And it would pave the way for the reburial of thousands of Native American bodies who were removed from their graves and carted off to museums without consent. It did that by requiring any museum or institution that had received federal funding and had native remains or funerary objects to inventory its collection and provide that information to tribes. Tribes could then make claims to the inventories and go through a consultation process to establish their connection to the items and then get them returned.
3: We ended up with about 320 museums that notified us of Hopi collections.
0: Early on, Lee remembers getting a particularly large inventory from the Chicago Field Museum.
3: I swear that was about a ream of paper. I don't know how many pages, but God, it was like that. Then we went to the next museum, and we finally went into the Coconino National Forest's records inventory, and that just just shocked me. They had about 3,000 ancestral remains and about 15,000 funerary objects.
0: NAGPRA was a powerful law, but it was also complicated, and it required tribes to confront a set of novel and emotional questions.
5: We started to think about what our internal game plan would be as far as the review of these inventories, who within the Pueblo would be responsible for the review, and, you know, at the end of all that, the the real challenge, the big challenge for us at Acoma was what do we do with human remains that we repatriate?
0: Brian
1: says that this was a discussion that went on at Acoma for several years.
5: Um, and we had to really wrap our, our head around these co- new concepts. And when reburial was... Identified as the the Akama standard that we would rebury. There were big questions about okay, what does that process look like? And that was very emotional. It was um, probably, as as some of the elders said, very inappropriate to talk about.
1: Lee says that the Hopi confronted similar questions when they handled their first repatriation case, two infants held by a museum in San Diego.
3: I remember sitting in my office and thinking about, you know, two infant remains, two infant remains. And what was hitting me was this was the first time we were going to physically handle these remains and put him back. That was bothersome for me. I, I, I just didn't know. I didn't even know how we would handle the reburial. I had no idea.
0: At Acma, Brian says they had to ask themselves if they should even participate in repatriation. Was it the right thing to do?
5: And so we had to internally think about what we needed to do to protect our people and our community and think about those not yet born and the implications of our conversations and our actions on those future generations of Akama people.
0: Ultimately, they decided that they would rebury.
5: And I think there was a sense of affording our ancestors that opportunity to be at rest and not to continue to be sitting on a shelf or in a dark room somewhere.
1: Implementing the law was logistically complicated, too,
0: because the collections did turn out to be vast. In 1999, for example, the remains of nearly 2,000 people were returned to Jemez Pueblo from the Harvard Museum and another museum in Massachusetts. But some cases took much longer, like
1: Esther's. Julie Coleman started her job at the San Juan National Forest in 2006.
4: And I had been there for about a month when I got a call from Mesa Verde. And they said, uh, We have finished all of our repatriations, so now you need to come get your stuff.
0: Which turned out to be the remains and objects removed from the Falls Creek rock shelters all those years ago.
4: But not all of it ended up at Mesa Verde. Uh, parts of the collections ended up at the University of Colorado at Boulder, the Henderson Museum. Some of it went to the Peabody Museum at Harvard. kind of got Um, scattered here and there across the country. In some cases, the remains of individuals
0: were separated, or the objects they were buried with went to one museum and the remains to another.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like a giant puzzle to put it all back together. It took quite a bit of time. Esther's
1: remains, along with the others who were removed from their graves at the Falls Creek Rock Shelter, were returned to the Hopi and were reburied seven years after she got that call from Mesa Verde.
0: Lee handled the reburial personally, as he has done a number of times.
3: Today, I'm the only one that's committed to doing reburials and handling human remains. So even though I retired, I'm still on call because like what the elder said 20-plus years ago, we have an ethical and moral responsibility to respectfully reinter them again.
0: But it's not an easy thing to do. Some people don't want to handle the remains or even see them.
3: But when it came to mummified remains no one wanted to touch them (laughs) you know because they're they're still not fully decomposed and and even our elders or religious leaders didn't want to handle them so I handled them
0: and these experiences stick with you
3: and then the other part of it is is, um, is really just the personal trauma that people have to go through. You know, one in the Hopi individuals helped me with remains over in Wupatke National Park. And he came back, he was my nephew too, and said, Lee, something's going on with me. And I think it's because I handled those remains. And I see the spirit, I feel the spirits of these ancestors still with me. And uh, I I probably won't help you anymore, he said. All right, well, let's go ahead and smudge you and cleanse you, I said. So we did that for him. So those kind of memories of it eventually went away. So he's just doing good right now.
0: Lee says he hasn't had as much of a problem with it, but it sticks with him too.
3: For a long time, what I visualized with the reburials and the mummified reburials. the mummified re- uh, remains are the ones that linger on you know you remember that because they're so profound and they, it, it lingers
1: the rangers working in the park today are often asked where the mummies are and park visitors still talk about seeing them as kids I remember that being a bit of a shock for me during my first year working at the park. One time I was visiting another park and ended up chatting with a guy about Mesa Verde. He remembered going to the park as a child, but his only specific memory of it was Esther. He'd bought a postcard with her image on it from the gift shop, and he kept it for years. He told me that he felt inspired when he looked at it.
0: So after everything we've heard about Esther's story, that seems like kind of an odd comment. What do you think he meant by that?
1: Well, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of visitors don't know the dark history behind the display of human remains, and they come to places like Mesa Verde because they're interested in the past. As Kathy Findare told us, for many people, Esther provided a resonant connection to that past. She affected them in ways objects like pottery or archaeological sites don't. And some people were angry when the Park Service made the decision to remove Esther from display.
2: A lot of the disagreement lies in the fact that many people believe there's such a thing as universal human history and that anything that can point us in the way of knowing something more about that history should not be kept from view. And then an opposing viewpoint is that, well, universal histories and the arguments for them are always made by uh, people who are imperialists and colonizers and they do this on by violating the rights, uh, the ancestral rights and territorial rights of Native peoples.
0: I asked Lee what he thought people who are still curious about Esther all these years later should know.
3: The best way for the Park Service to respond on those kind of questions is that, you know, the Park Service has worked with the tribes and we agreed that all of us, including the agency, has more responsibility to repair them and I think we did the right thing period.
0: And he says, the dead aren't collectibles. They aren't objects to own. That's true no matter whose ancestors you're talking about.
3: To show that kind of respect for all ancestors, recent ancestors, you know, the pilgrim ancestors, all the colonies out there that people passed away, and our own remains out there. Everyone needs to be respectful. Everybody needs to have that kind of feeling from their heart. So don't do it again.
0: Thanks to Lee Kwanawasuma and the Hopi tribe, and thanks to Brian Vayo of Acoma Pueblo and the School for Advanced Research. Thanks to Kathy
1: Findair of Fort Lewis College and to Julie Coleman and the U.S. Forest Service.
0: And thanks to the National Park Service and the U.S. Department of the Interior, whose staffers we talked to for background research on this episode. And thanks for listening. You can subscribe to
1: the podcast on iTunes and do us a favor and leave us a review. For more information, visit MesaVertieVoices.org.
0: Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It's produced in partnership with Mesa Verde National Park and the Mesa Verde Museum Association, with additional support from the Ballantine Family Fund, Aramark, and Concept 360.